Aloha Kako. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Hawaii Talks. I'm Noe Tanigawa. And eating around's a regular feature on the Aloha Friday show, and recently a lot of that has been in our own kitchens. But today, we're stepping out again to talk with Roy Yamaguchi, founder and chef of Roy's Restaurants. His food businesses range from resort fine dining to cruise ship operations, and lately, he says, his original neighborhood Roy's in Hawaii Kai has been doing the best. So for the majority of your businesses, which were in resort areas or tourism, travel-related, those businesses are down to what, zero or negative, actually? Oh, well, I mean, well, you know, definitely it's down to zero because we're not operating. Right. But uh, negative, right? How much does this cost a month, Roy? Well, you know what? It's, I, I don't really want to get into details about how much it costs, you know, but at the end of the day, it's costly. My whole thing is to come out of it and to continue to work hard and to rebuild something that our team and I have built over 30 years. So, I mean, we're not going to go down without swinging hard. (laughs) (laughs) That's why we're talking to you. Well, is there a way to break even, you know, with social distancing and take up? Maybe you know what, it's, it's really hard to tell. I mean, at this point in time, you know, the bottom line is that, you know, depending on how the uh, customers react to all of this and to get some, you know, help from, you know, our landlords. I mean, this is a new era for everybody. And that's the way you have to look at it. The foundation is still there. You know, hard work, being creative, being innovative, always changing, evolving. All of those things are going to continue to be there, but they just have to be exercised in a different way. We've always sanitized our restaurants. It's just that, you know, it just has to be done more aggressively in the eyes of our consumers. You know, before we used to hide and do all of these different things. As, as I look for the future and, and, I, and I look at, you know, how we can stay afloat and, and how we can create a living for all of us, I don't see the to-go business going away. I truly believe that the to-go business is going to be a, a vital part to the strength and survival of a business. It's a new way of just operating. But I think that you know we, we have to all come together and realize that it's not going to be an easy task. It's not one of these situations where you can say, okay, this is my job and that's it. You know, everybody has to be multitask. Everybody has to be able to do different things at the same time. And then the restaurant's going to have to work with landlords and the landlords have to work with bankers. And Everybody has to pull through and work as a team. It's Roy Yamaguchi, founder and chef of Roy's Restaurant. Sounds like he's saying restaurants are going to have to make to-go fabulous. Roy's, Roy's Hawaii Kai, also in Ko'olina and Goen in Kailua, plan to open up dining next week. But reopening, you know, I mean, under semi-pandemic conditions, what exactly does that take? Not just for, you know, large operations, but for the many tiny eateries that we all love. For that, we're turning to Greg Maples, the incoming president of the Hawaii Restaurant Association. I had to ask, how are restaurants weighing this situation? Well, if you think about restaurants during the pandemic, some restaurants lost up to 80, 85 percent of their sales. Now, you lose 80-85% of your sales, but your rent has stayed the same. A lot of landlords have given abatements. We've had some good landlords that are good people, been on the island for many, many years, want to see people succeed. But that's the other thing about Hawaii is the margins on restaurants are a lot lower here than they are in a lot of other places. What are profit margins normally like here in Hawaii? On the mainland, most restaurants are around 20%. Here, you're probably 5 to 8% if you're lucky. These are different kinds of people who go into business when you're expecting a 20% profit margin or an 8% profit margin. That's why I love these owners and operators of Hawaii. These are people who really are in their business. I mean, these are, you talk about skin in the game, they got it. <laughs> because our margins are so much smaller here, this pandemic has really tested Uh, our owners and operators. And and quite honestly, what keeps me up at night are the decisions these folks are having to make on a daily basis, whether to stay open, whether to close. You know, and in some cases, some of them will end up closed and bankrupt. So let's go back to the cost structure. So now I've lost 80% of my sales. Who do I bring back? What you'll find is a lot of these restaurant owners are working, right? And some of them who are have maybe kind of retired, let family run it. They're back working in these restaurants every single day. And they've tried to keep only the minimum number of people that they, they need. A couple of things happened. The PPP 
program came out for the for the funding from the federal government, not all restaurants got that. Can you so, estimate what percentage of local restaurants did get something out of that? I would say probably 40 to maybe 50% at the high end got it. And the reason why I say that is because a lot of restaurants that closed during the pandemic didn't even apply. They just closed. And the other thing I want to be real clear about is the restaurants that have closed during the pandemic, probably 60% of those won't open again. They just won't be able to do it because they don't have any cash. You have to have cash to buy the food to be delivered. You have to have cash to pay your uh, your utilities. You have to have cash to pay your employees. And they're cashless right now. They have no money. And so without a loan, without a PPP, we're going to see a lot of restaurants just not open. We're grateful for Mayor Caldwell and for Governor Ige for allowing us to open on June 5th. They've had good ears and they've listened well. And so the guidelines that you say can't come out, there's a lot of it that came from the HRA with the help of the Department of Health. They've been really great people. I just want to say that. You know, there, there are a lot of people complaining that things have been closed down, shut down too long. Are, are, there, is the Hawaii Restaurant Association, you know, in that camp? A couple of things. One is we're very grateful that we've kept the people of Hawaii safe. Okay, we have done an excellent job. And I know the mayor and the governor say that all the time, but we really have. However, it is time to open the, open the state. We have to because... We are opening up these restaurants to Kama'aina. If you open up dining areas to Kama'aina, instead of losing 80%, now maybe you're going to be up to 60% loss in sales. You can't bring everybody back of your employees, so they're going to stay furloughed or on unemployment. And I want to say this as well. Right now, Hawaii is not feeling the real brunt of this because of the 600 plus up from the federal government. That 600 plus up has been a real blessing for so many people. Now, as restaurant owners and operators, we're not only stuck with the fact that we're still, even when we get our dining back, we're going to be at, let's say, best case scenario, 50% of our sales. Best case scenario. Now we're going to have a hard time bringing employees back. And the ones who do come back, we got to make sure they make as much money as they, as they were on unemployment, right? The answer to that is open the island to tourism. It's the answer to helping sales go up. Huh. You're talking about getting up to 50% of your old revenue as a best case scenario. Long term, what are we looking at here, Greg? So 50% of your inside seating, that's tough. But to make that your new normal, you're going to have to have a new normal in rent, a new normal in labor, a new normal in speed of service, a new normal in in cost. What percent of restaurants do you think will be reopening? Well, I think all of the restaurants that are open now will open their dining rooms over the next week. So I think those that are open, but my guess is only probably less than 40, 50% of those that are closed will reopen. And then the sad part is if we don't open it to tourism, the majority of those restaurants will close back down again. They just won't be able to make it. You know, the other thing I want to say that I'm really worried about is if we, if we don't push the tourism button soon enough and the economy goes down, young people are going to leave this island to go find jobs that will pay them in places that they can afford. 13 out of 13 of my grandchildren are not on this island, and I could never entice them to come back because of how tough it is here. If this economy goes down, people are gonna leave here and we won't get them back. That breaks my heart because I want, I want to ra raise a generation of people that love the island and love the lifestyle and will perpetuate it, but you can't promise them low paying jobs, high tax rates, and you're gonna to have to live four generations in a home. They're gonna go somewhere else and get jobs, and that worries me. We've been talking with Greg Maples, incoming president, Hawaii Restaurant Association, and Greg gave a huge shout out to killer restaurants on his Ko'olaloa side of the island. We know you're great. Papa Ole's, Tita's Grill with Junior IU, Chop Suey, Seven Brothers, and his own place, Pounders at PCC, which is set to reopen June 8th. Fist pump to all of you. Grocery stores have become a larger part of our lives in this COVID-19 period. For many, it's the outing of the week. And we've all noticed changes, too. Shopping carts sanitized between customers, a sanitizing station just inside the door. Grocers are implementing coronavirus accommodations across the board, according to Lauren Zerbel, executive director of the Hawaii Food Industry Association. If the grocers you've been to look busy, Zerbel says they are. 
We actually had to increase our hiring. We're one of the few industries that is currently hiring people. So if you're looking for a job, uh, we encourage you to look in the food industry because a lot of our retailers and suppliers are hiring right now, especially suppliers that supply primarily grocery stores. We have very in-depth protocols that are put in place by our national association about how to best sanitize the store, the cart, and just general good hygiene protocols. So um, that takes up a lot of time. So that's why we had to cut store hours. And we anticipate that those will continue probably until there's a vaccine. So people really in the grocery industry see that as sort of the new normal is these new sanitation requirements and then also social distancing and mask wearing. It's been implemented across all channels, including our suppliers. You've seen the ebbs and flows in the grocery aisles, right, Lauren? How's the supply chain doing? There was a massive transition between food service to grocery. The types of items that are sold to restaurants look very different than the types of items that are sold at, at a grocery store. So the national manufacturers and local manufacturers had to sort of uh, repackage a lot of the actual food product because the demand was obviously at the retail level and not at the food service level anymore, which is funny because it's sort of the opposite trend we've been seeing for the last 10 years. And in fact, many grocery stores had been moving more towards a food service model, providing prepared food to people. But there was a huge drop in demand for food service, even within grocery stores, which would indicate that at least in the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis, many people, up to 60% or so, felt uncomfortable um, having someone else cook their food. So it really changed the demand structure of how food is packaged was one of the primary issues. And then, of course, there are those certain items that were hoarded, like toilet paper and hand sanitizer and Lysol. And those items, in some cases, we're still trying to get back to normal on. It's anyone's guess as to how many people return and, you know, what the shift backwards will look like towards towards food service. Um, we know that a lot of things that we used to do won't be allowed anymore, like the buffet-style foods are not recommended anymore. So you probably won't be seeing that for a while. You know, what percentage of the materials that were intended for the restaurants do you think were successfully rerouted to the retail sector? Well, a lot of them were donated in the beginning to um, efforts to feed the hungry. Um, we had very high unemployment in this state and a very large number of hungry people. And so um, a lot of our suppliers that had supplied food service operations um, were very, very generous and ended up donating a lot of those products that were used for prepared meals for seniors and, and for children and, and um, people that were going through extreme financial hard, hardship as a result of being unemployed. There wasn't a shortage of food ever. What do you think and, and what are grocery stores doing about the waste stream that's created here now? So it's actually a huge problem that we have these new <laughs> rules and regulation that are supposed to take effect in some cases within the next year that would require retailers to use much more expensive packaging. We didn't realize that COVID-19 would happen and that the number of containers that we're going to need to use is going to be so much higher, even to meet like federal health guidelines, you know? So actually, I don't think it's a problem from a waste stream management issue. I think we've all seen the newspaper articles about how H-Power doesn't have enough trash to burn to fulfill their contract because we don't we don't have a lot of tourists here right now. But yeah, it is a problem from a cost perspective and from an availability and supply perspective. If we're not allowed to use plastic single-use containers anymore, that is something we're actually rather concerned with right now. Is there any group trying to work toward, you know, somehow accommodating all the concerns involved? We're in discussions with a lot of different businesses that have been impacted and we're trying to come up with solutions to to try to address this issue. You know, I don't think anyone anticipated at the start of this how long this would last. This is really um, going to be impacting people's lives for however long it takes until we can have a vaccine or until there's herd immunity. And I don't think we're going to have herd immunity. So um, we're waiting for a vaccine, essentially, and we're waiting for everyone to be able to access it that needs it. And so that could take over a year. So we have to find a way to survive until 
we can get the virus under control. And that means that we have to follow these new procedures and, and sanitation requirements and be extra careful about how we're handling our food. Exactly. We've been talking with Lauren Zerbel, Executive Director of the Hawaii Food Industry Association, which also produces that annual love fest for all things local, the Made in Hawaii Festival. Trumpets here, please. Lauren said it's going online. You won't have to park on Punchbowl and walk to the Blaisdell this year. No, they're launch around the same time as the usual festival. That's late August. And get, they'll be getting all those 400 exhibitors and maybe even more of them online. Applications are open now. MadeInHawaiiFestival.com. Find links with this story on the conversation page. Oh, and speaking of Made in Hawaii, yesterday, Mayor Caldwell approved reopening production and on-location shooting for film and video on Oahu. That starts today. This is the Aloha Friday Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. And here's your backyard quiz. The harp is one of those instruments whose full capabilities have yet to be explored. I mean, we think of lush strings creating dreamy arpeggios, but consider this, that shimmering sound as a unique jazz voice. In 2014, a group of musicians in Hawaii did just that when they formed the Pacific Harp Project. The lineup included Noel Lokimoto on vibraphone, John Haas on bass, Alan Ward on drums, and classically trained Megan Bledsoe Ward on harp. Their original compositions and arrangements were hailed by critics as an unforgettable sonic experience. Their artistry was recognized in 2016 when they won the Nahoku Hanohano Award for Instrumental Album of the Year. We're weaving their music throughout today's Aloha Friday show. And for today's quiz, can you name the album? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. And the first one to get it right gets our reusable tote bag that tells people that you did get it right. Support for the Aloha Friday Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing the stories of Hawaii's people and places on Aloha Friday. Updated listings and select virtual tours at locationshawaii.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Arianna Huffington, author of Thrive. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the third metric to redefining success and creating a life of well-being, wisdom, and wonder. Sunday morning at 11. It's time now to take a look across the globe. France says it succeeded in getting the virus under control, but the World Health Organization has urged people to continue to protect themselves. And a team of Samoan rugby players who set off for a match in February still have not made it home because of COVID-19. Here's the BBC with the latest. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Friday the 5th of June. I'm Jackie Leonard. France says it succeeded in getting the virus under control, but the World Health Organization has urged people to continue to protect themselves. The US sees an unexpected surge in the employment rate after lockdown measures are eased, and the Samoan rugby players who set off for a match in February who still aren't home because of COVID-19. France says it succeeded in getting the coronavirus pandemic under control. Here's the head of the government's scientific advisory council, Jean-François Delfressy. 
On peut dire que euh, actuellement, euh, raisonnablement, we can say that at the moment, within reason, the epidemic is under control. So what does that mean? That means firstly that the virus does continue to circulate, contrary to what some people say, and more in some regions than others. More in the region around Paris than in the south and west of France. But it's circulating at a slow speed. Official figures show new cases dropped from 80,000 a day in early March to 1,000 today. The World Health Organization, however, has again urged people to continue to protect themselves as countries ease lockdown measures. A WHO spokeswoman said the possibility of infection was not over until there was no virus left anywhere in the world. The number of people with jobs in the United States increased by 2.5 million in May, defying expectations that the situation would deteriorate further. The Bureau of Labor Statistics said the improvement reflected what it called a limited resumption of economic activity after the coronavirus lockdowns. However, the unemployment rate is still over 13%, compared with 3.5% in March. South Africa's top vaccine expert has warned that its hospitals could be overwhelmed by coronavirus cases within weeks. Professor Shabir Mahdi said the true infection rate was now far higher than indicated by an overloaded testing system. Andrew Harding reports from Johannesburg. After a promising start, South Africa is beginning to struggle. Intensive care beds in Cape Town are already full. In the nearby Eastern Cape, a poor and notoriously badly run province, the situation is looking even worse. The professor warned that the struggling Eastern Cape could well give clues as to how the pandemic will affect the rest of the continent. Anyone who thought Africa might be spared, perhaps because it has a relatively young population, was, he said, guilty of wishful thinking. Madagascar's education minister has been sacked over plans to order more than $2 million worth of sweets for school children. The minister said the sweets were to help with the bitter taste of a herbal brew Madagascar's president has been touting as a remedy for coronavirus. Our Southern Africa reporter Pumza Falani has more. Madagascar's education minister Ridziaswa Andrea Manana did not expect to lose her job when she proudly announced her sugary purchase to cabinet and the media but she did. She said pupils would be given three lollies each to help with the taste of the COVID organics herbal tonic promoted by Madagascar's president as a cure for coronavirus. But $2 million is a lot of money to spend on treats. And she faced criticism not only within government, but also from the public. A city in the Russian Arctic famous for manufacturing nuclear submarines is preparing to be sealed off from the outside world after its COVID infection rate spiked. Sasha Schlichter reports. Residents of Severodvinsk are used to isolation, and not just because their city is so remote, located in a river delta above the Arctic Circle. For most of its history, it literally was sealed off from the outside world, producing top-secret nuclear submarines and warships. Today, police are once again manning entry checkpoints. The life of a top sportsman or woman means a lot of time spent away from home. But thanks to coronavirus, one Samoan rugby team's journey back from an away fixture is still in progress, more than 80 days after the match and more than 100 days since leaving Samoa. Jonathan Savage has the story. Just after Manama Samoa's 52-27 defeat to South China Tigers in the Australian city of Perth, Samoa first told travellers to quarantine before they arrive, then closed its borders completely. So the rugby stars found themselves in their New Zealand training base, sharing a single dorm room between them. That was the middle of March, and it was only last week that they were allowed back into Samoa. But the saga continues. They're scattered around Samoa, confined to hotels for another few days. I imagine this is what a prisoner feels like, said understandably fed-up team manager Tuala Pat Liotta. And staying in the Pacific Islands, Fiji has declared itself free from coronavirus after its last known infected patient was given the all-clear. This is the Coronavirus Global Update. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool.
Tune in to HBR1 Saturday night for Hawaii Public Radio presents Blue Note Virtually Live. Performances from the Blue Note Hawaii stage. This week is Tavana, a one-man band who uses his feet to lay down a variety of grooves to accompany his soulful, island-inspired rock and blues. Plus, host Marco Olivari chats with Tavana backstage. That's Saturday at 6 p.m. Tune in to HPR1 or listen on your smart speaker. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with a collection reflecting the cultural diversity of the islands and a commitment to presenting art and exhibitions that inspire. More at honolulumuseum.org. This past week, I met Lee Stack, president of the Chinatown Improvement District in Chinatown. Her group was one of those drawing attention to a proposed homeless triage center that was planned on Baratania Street. That proposal by the Institute for Human Services and the city has been withdrawn due to community opposition. But Stack says the conditions that have the Chinatown community up in arms are still there. I think when I first sort of located my, my business here and came down, probably in 2000, I would see homeless people and they would be in doorways but or sleeping and, and sometimes they'd be drunk. But it, it's changed over time and I think now you see a much more people who have drug problems, people acting erratically. I didn't used to see that before. People would be sort of be passed out somewhere but not threatening people, not acting erratically, not screaming and yelling. What worries you for Chinatown now then? Well, I, I think especially over near River of Life in that area where a lot of the services have been located and housing first units are there. They see it and I hear from those people and, it, and it's really a struggle for them to do business there, to, to have a stake there, to even have a say there really. You know, these things are put in really without asking them or consulting them. I think that tends to happen a lot, you know. I, I wish people would work with the community earlier because people in the community have ideas. I mean, they care as much as, about this community as anybody. What are some actionable ideas that, that you all have been tossing around? Well, the complaint from people around the neighborhood at River of Life is social distancing, people line up, people are get stabbed in the lines. You know, they have no control over the people who are there. So they don't really, I think, see them as their clients. It's not like a restaurant where you're responsible sort of for your customers. So one thing we did suggest, which was to put more of the cost on the on the people providing the services, is that maybe they take out a street permit for the feedings, for the lunches, and then they would have police there because when you close a, a road, you have to have police monitoring. So they could police social distance. They would pick up the trash. They would be responsible for that, for any noise, for the people within the closure, just as they are here on First Fridays and other street closures because they are servicing a lot of people and it has come up that the costs are being sort of extrapolated out into the community. The trash, the screaming, the fighting, the crime, all the things that go with it, they open their doors, they feed, they close their doors. They're difficult problems. These are difficult problems. I'm not saying they're easy and it might be easy to sit in a tower somewhere on Bishop Street, but you know, for people facing these issues on a day-to-day basis and trying to survive with a business and hire people and and yes I mean I think everybody feels for people who don't have housing and who are struggling. So of the businesses in your hui, uh, how are they doing? We've heard concerns you know from people we've heard talk about reductions in rent and people have been reducing rent so I only know of maybe one person who's moving out but they, they've been in business for 30-some years, and it's maybe time to close anyway. So I, I think people are cautiously hopeful. That's what I would say. I mean, is there any hope for art in this neighborhood, Lee? I think there is. I, I really like it as a diverse neighborhood that has a little bit of everything. I, I, I was a little leery when the artists started trying to speak for the whole neighborhood, and I, and I did hear that. That was one reason our group formed because I think people have different histories, needs, wants. So I I think there needs to be a balance. But yes, I think Chinatown, over its history, has been very welcoming to all different groups, you know, and all small businesses. But I am not so keen maybe on central planning of Chinatown. It needs to be like this, or it needs to be like that. I like all the, this sort of diversity, a little bit of the grit, it makes it real. Some of the individual businesses over time, these are family businesses. I mean, these are generational businesses, like Char Hung Sut. These are businesses that own their own property. They, they definitely have a stake in the neighborhood and they have created part of the culture of this neighborhood. 
So that's why we think it's important that these businesses are listened to for things like bulb outs, for things, other things that come up in the neighborhood. And unfortunately, I think what's happened is people in general try to speak for Chinatown or think they know what's best for Chinatown. And I really think it's these stakeholders. It's these people who have created this neighborhood who have, they're the ones who make it special. Yeah, and the herbs and the apothecary shops, I mean, and the lay shops. I mean, they're one of the most traditional vendors probably here because this is where everybody used to come to get their lays. But there is, I, I think people have thought over time, there is this concentration of services in the area. And I think one thing we're worried about is lack of transparency, lack of accountability. From what we understood, the Punavai rest stop has a second and third floor and was allocated $20 million that have not been built out for a triage center and temporary accommodations for people. So why is something else being proposed, you know, again in Chinatown when there's that facility that's unfinished? Are the neighborhoods better off than they were, say, seven years ago? I mean, are things better off? And I, I think most people would say no. If you look at all the services that have been expended and put here, and that people were told this will help, this will take people off the street, you know, that hasn't happened. I mean, they put, I believe, one reason they have the hygiene center there so they can have a public restroom. In Chinatown, there's a public restroom, and yet people defecate everywhere. I mean, it's more so than before. So where's the disconnect? You have to ask yourself, I mean, is, is the public restroom working or is something else needed? That's where we're thinking maybe more intervention. I mean, people should not be defecating in public, right? It's against the law. That's why I also say more accountability. What's working? So what we'd hear at the neighborhood board is the city would get up and say, well, they're resistant to services. Like, there's nothing we can do. And so finally I got up and I said, well, then what's the plan? I mean, if they're resistant to services, what's the next step? Well, what's the answer there? They didn't have one. But finally, somebody came up with ACT. If it's working or not, I don't know. Then there was the SMART program, and I'm like, that sounds a lot like LEAD. <laughs> LEAD, L-E-A-D. ACT, A-C-T, there are programs at work in Chinatown, and we're going to learn more about them. Lee Stack, president of the Chinatown Improvement District. She was there at the downtown Chinatown Neighborhood Board meeting last night. Pretty interesting. Connie Mitchell, executive director of the Institute for Human Services, was there. She said definitively in response to community opposition, they are calling off a search for space in Chinatown. Also at that meeting, Dean Sakamoto of Shade Architects he announced they're seeking a grant to apply an artist's perspective to some of Chinatown's challenges this summer. And work does continue on the venerable Wolfat building. Bar on the ground floor, boutique hotel above. That's the plan. I've been wanting to meet Chulon Schubert Kwok, president of the Chinatown Business and Community Association for years. She was on the Honolulu Liquor Commission for nine years, currently serves on the Downtown Chinatown Neighborhood Board, and she is the primary conduit for feedback from many of Chinatown's business people. She's got connections with the immigrant businesses. Kwok's favorite place to meet is Jackie's Macau on Hotel, just Eva of the police station. Chulon, describe to me what, what it's like in Chinatown right now. Hellhole. <laughs> it's a hellhole. Who wants to be walking down being afraid? Look at this. I was attacked twice. What's so that? I, this is a pepper spray that I had to carry and a whistle because I don't know at any time anybody will attack you or purse snatch or whatever. It's very dangerous in Chinatown. We will hurt our business by saying that, but we have to tell the truth and let people know when they come in. Be very aware of purse. Be very aware of your surrounding because we have unstable people around us. They may fantasize that you're harming them and they attack you. Chinatown was the first place that felt the effects of COVID-19. Yes. And it was even before the virus came That's right. To we have an escalation of homeless people by more than 30% in the last two months. Everywhere I see, I see new faces coming from elsewhere. And did business drop though before? Oh, we have no more business. When did it all start, the business problems and the... Oh, business? it's been years. The last one and a half years, we we're doing things to improve. Then COVID hit us in February and March. So March and April, we were dead. There were only a few stores open. You're only allowed to... Grocery stores are allowed. Only one allowed to open. Restaurant open, they've got lots of restaurants, right? And then one closed already, 88, uh, happy day, closed already. And the city didn't do the right thing by Chinatown. Three of the worst thing they ever did, they put in the bow pout. 
So what? people cannot bulb out. B U L B like bulb. Bulb out. Yeah. The, the pedestrian. Right. I'm sorry. Right. This math is <laughs> making it hard to. I know exactly. When we did the Chinatown Summit study, the number one problem in Chinatown was homelessness and drug crime. Bathroom. Not pedestrian safety. We don't have hardly any big pedestrian death in Chinatown because people are forced to slow down because it's a narrow street. So when the city got a bunch of money for complete streets, they decided this is the thing to do. They never consult with the community. They put out the pop out. We put up a big five. Got over 8,000 signatures in petition. They ignored us. Then, before Mother's Day, the week before, they put up the big spike. They were supposed to be for 90 day Pilot project? Yes. And then, it's been two and a half years. Just those tall standing poles have been the, Yeah, they put in these truncheons and then they painted the uh, seven feet by seven feet on each corner. Right. And um, this brown. was supposedly... Shorten the crosswalk. Shorten the crosswalk between the traffic lights for pedestrians. These are the places that we need to use to park. We said, city, Chinatown is a special historic district. It was born small. We have to go with what our businesses need and our cultural and historical context. So why can't we reclassify these as community stop and go? Makes a lot of sense. Everybody can use it for a few minutes and go. Like what? you pick up Manapur, pick up Lay, five, ten minutes. Because then what the city did, they allowed Biki Bite to take on three, two parking stalls and not pay. And they allowed, you can rent surf coast car in Chinatown. So the city, instead of helping Chinatown, in the first place, their garages are not safe. Broken lights, smelly, dungeon-like, some with no elevator, you wouldn't want to go park in there. So street parking becomes very important. Guess what? Last July, the city increased it to $3 for every hour. Yeah, instead of 75 cents. Is that helping Chinatown? And the next thing was we have a garbage issue, out of control. The city didn't allow more people to sign in to garbage pickup because of union bargaining. Because we don't have loading zone, we don't have commercial parking for these tall vehicles. They, cannot, they have nowhere to go, right? So you're forcing people to do illegal things. Deaf ear, they don't take care of this. They don't consult with the people that live and work here that know the problem. They're the city, the bureaucracy, this is what we want to do, and then they stage a public hearing at a time when nobody can go, and they just pass mustard legally. But right now, River Life is giving out free food right now and also boxes of stuff that are donated. So you see all the people in the warehouse getting it. Three meals a day and you can sit anywhere you like. You can get access to drugs and alcohol. Why wouldn't they love it? We, we're tired of being the center of homelessness. We are tired. We are a business and historic cultural district. Why don't they go to Kahala or Diamond Head? Huh? Why don't they go to Hawaii Kai? Why is that? Why, why not Kaka'ako? Why all chase them over here? Because these folks that we have are afraid to speak up. They don't want retribution. Many of these windows have been broken. See that one? How many of, the, of Chinatown businesses do you think are going to survive this COVID shutdown? I think we're going to lose a third of them easily. If the landlords are not going to hold off rent, do something, because how can you survive this? You've been here an hour. Two customers, and you're dealing with perishables. Your aircon has to go on, your electric has to go on, you got to pay your water bill, you got to pay your taxes, your insurance. How far can you go? It's mom and pop business. Get up at three o'clock like this, open at five. Like some of the restaurants here, they're upscale, they're doing well because they're getting the, the wealthy trade to come and eat novelty in Chinatown, exotic. But these people don't live and work here. We have some very expensive restaurants in Chinatown. They're doing well because they have rich clientele, right? But now they close too. Who are the people who are running these businesses? Tell me about those people. Who are like Mr. and Mrs. Lee, an immigrant or first generation, mostly first generation, are trying to make a better life for their kids, trying to pay their bills. What do you think the... the costs are for a business. Cake or Leaky Mall, each vegetable store is $5,000 a month. Manicure Marketplace, each stall is $3,500 and up. So when you buy a dollar bag of grocery, how much are they making? No? On a good day, 
they make a, a, a wage. So they maybe make $2,000 per themselves per, per month. If we lose them, we lose China. Already, we lost a lot of business. Farmers market took a lot of business from Chinatown. And the rent is still high in Chinatown. And then you go to Kalihi, old city square. They, they took away a lot of business too. So with all of these things against Chinatown, with the government and the, and the city administration not caring, they don't even repair their own buildings, okay? They keep starting new projects. Hey, Chuan, I mean, do you think there's any hope for art in Chinatown? That would be the best thing, but you see any art around? Do you think art could really help in this situation? We tried to paint our sidewalks <laughs> to make art so that people don't graffiti our walls and stuff. But then we don't have the funding to do it. <laughs> Have you ever tried working with like Arts at Mark's Garage or Sandy well, Pole or any of those? Art has died because it didn't impact, like Mark's Garage is in a very bad way. They have a new director. And then um, Hawaii Theater has a new director. They're all in a bad way because the money for art has shrunken up. Because art, when they were doing it, they were using every little excuse to call it art, right? Somebody spitting onto a, 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 a canvas is art. I mean, I, I love art. My feet stomping on something, I call it art. You cannot sustain that kind of art. That is maybe having fun right, with paint, but that is not real art. I think it goes too far, and then people can see that it's not really something they can learn or something that has any long-lasting impact. Like the mural right now on Smith, street is very nice on on, on 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 the wall of lucky belly that's nice those nice murals we say art do you think that partnerships though with the bars and clubs is important for the overall if they are sincere in truly looking at the big vision of chinatown not for their quick profits if they have a true passionate sincere mission i want to ask you chulan what is your dream for Chinatown? What could Chinatown be? Open 24 hours. Have business at night market, have people come and always be the place to go, like the old San Francisco, you know? You can always trust it to be safe, open, celebratory, lots of restaurants. It's a place to entertain and to live our history and culture. The lace shops all open, yeah. have the clubs playing music. I just want it properly run. Follow the law and don't cheat. Very simple. That's all. Chulan Schubert Kwok, co-founder and president of the Chinatown Business and Community Association. We've got to take an architectural tour of Honolulu's Chinatown sometime very soon. about the Pacific Harp Project, formed in 2014 when classically trained harpist Megan Bledsoe Ward teamed up with jazz musicians Noel Okimoto, vibraphone, John Hawes bass, and Ellen Ward on drums. Now they combined traditional harp repertoire with improvisation, jazz, pop, and they wrote a bunch of originals too. Critics and fans love the sound they played. Really do a lot of applause here at the Atherton. The band's self-titled debut, Pacific Harp Project, took home Best Instrumental Album of the Year at the 2016 Nahoku Hanohano Awards. Saxophonist Todd Yukimoto is now in the lineup, and last year they released a second album entitled Play. That's the answer to today's quiz, and if you've got one, you can send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, locations, and Honolulu Waldorf School.
This is Jose Fajardo, President and General Manager of HPR. We know you rely on Hawaii Public Radio for news and information that you can trust and as an oasis of music when you need it. Despite the uncertainties of the day, one thing you can be sure of is HPR is here for you. And we know you're there for us. If you have the means to do so, please consider making a donation today in any amount that works for you. Just go to hawaiipublicradio.org and thanks. I'd like to introduce you now to Lauren Trangmar, graphic artist, illustrator. Trangmar was launched by the 2014 Artists of Hawaii show, just six months after graduating from UH with a BA. Her botanical illustration style makes the sort of fantastical creatures and events she depicts appear scientific. You may have seen her things at Pig and the Lady or at High Sam. She is one of those among us, those very few among us, who make a living off being her weird self. Trangmar says it's all been a bit of an adjustment. First off, the museum decided to uh, purchase almost the whole body of work that I had in the show. And so I had to kind of navigate how that works and like, you know, how to charge. And like, basically, I had to start running my own business. And I was like, what? What is this GET thing? You know, like, there are things that come up and it's like, ooh, what's this? Like, should I be doing this? I just like graduated from college and was like, yeah, I'm just going to get a job. And then I didn't. So <laughs> I was like, it was happening in a different way that I wasn't familiar with. And <laughs> I didn't know how the whole system worked and like some of the, the more experienced artists helped to give me some advice on how to navigate that and then when people started commissioning me to do work then what was your first commission i think my first big one was the one with aloha green the um, medical cannabis dispensary they wanted um scientific drawings yeah but lauren they wanted scientific kind of drawings with a little <laughs> something out there with my well. whimsical crazy like <laughs> storytelling mind and then from that one actually I got this like massive like illustrated wallpaper and they wanted like a similar thing but it was like this massive wall and it was like huge and it's in Kula and Co which is like a um, pineapple cake store in the international marketplace I had to figure out how to put it on this massive wall and how that kind of works. It was quite a process. Well, there's another learning curve, huh? Oh yeah, everything I do is like a learning curve. It's like, <laughs> I don't know, you like sort of make the path by walking it kind of thing, you know, and you just sort of see what comes at you and you have to deal with it. Were you surprised when it became a living? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, your whole life, you're like, I'm gonna be an artist. And everyone's like, really, okay, you know? And um, so that's why I actually went into graphic design in the beginning, because like no one in my family are artists um, and they were kind of like, oh, you know, that's like great and you should totally do what you what you love. But maybe you should take some design classes just in case. So you've got something to fall back on and you can do all your other stuff too. But there are jobs in that field, you know. Are you glad you did? Um, actually, I'm so glad, even though now... Like, I don't think I would go and work as, like, a full-on graphic designer. The foundation, it is just, like, the best thing to have as, like, an underlying superpower. It so works with your style. Yeah, you know? it helps mm -hmm. so much. Well, so describe how your business was going pre-COVID. Um, pretty good. I kind of just, like, cruise along and, like, <laughs> whatever happens happens like things come in and you know the thing with being an artist and like an illustrator it's like there is no no path you just kind of make it by walking it and things like come and go and if nothing's coming you just make your own until something does you know so it's not really much of a I don't I sort of just cruise along and, and take it as it comes otherwise I have a home studio so I could keep working and uh, my projects kept running and I could just move meetings online and I always have so much like in me that I, I can work on. It was more of a like a mental shift or a awareness of the world around me and kind of sitting with that feeling of like knowing but unknowing and like reflection in the, in the quiet spaces that got created. Um, as an artist I guess there's always that kind of 
feeling of vulnerability or unknowing at a certain point when you're creating and because there's no solid formula yeah you're always having to figure something out or it's not happening you know because that's now how everybody is in this COVID yeah. period, you know? No, it's so weird. I feel like everyone just knows how I feel all the time. Like, yeah, you have to, um, I guess, as an artist, and it helps with life, especially now, you um, have to get comfortable with the feeling of not knowing exactly what your outcome's going to be, but friends and, like, just the community here is so rich with amazing people. Everyone supporting each other and... Yeah, holding each other up is so important. Artist illustrator Lauren Trangmar's work is all over town. She sits at the Moray by Art and Flea shop at South Shore Market on Friday nights. And Lauren said she just finished a map of the Hawaiian Islands. I can't wait to see that one. And now, here's Kimia Minor and the rock steady Imua Garza. Find this among the fresh local performances on the High Sessions YouTube channel. I'll pick you up, girl, if you're ready. Hold the vibe, rock steady. We go slow, vibes of flow. The only woman that I truly know. A real woman, courteous and kind. The type of girl I idolize. A real queen, so sweet. From your crown to the soles of your feet. There's a paddle out for unity in memory of George Floyd. Hanalei Pier, tomorrow, Saturday morning, 9 a.m. And that's not the only one. And I guess that's about it for this Aloha Friday. Thank you so much for your company today. We'd love to hear from you, too. Call our talkback line and leave us your comments. The number there... 808-792-8217. You can email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or post comments at all the usual places. You can find us Facebook, tweet us, you can find us on Instagram too. Or visit the conversation page on the HPR website. The program's produced by Lillian Zhang, Harrison Patino, and Jason Ubai. The Backyard Quiz theme was written for us by John DeMello and our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. Catherine Cruz is your usual host, the amazing Catherine Cruz. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Let's take care of each other and meet again Monday for the conversation.